0: as we have gone through the book of Judges and we've seen Israel get farther and farther away from God, as their physical lives have gotten worse and worse, they have the answer. They have what will get them back. It's their Lord God that rescued them out of Egypt, that sustained them in the desert, that conquered all of those cities that they took over in the promised land. Who has given them all these great promises if they stay centered in him and yet they continue to wander farther and farther off as we see this remember that God is our focus he needs to be our main focus where we come to when things are off remember we were created to be with him it's part of who we are we need Him, to be all that we can be. Nothing makes sense without Him. We can see it in our own lives, and we can sure see it in Israel, that the farther we fall from God, the worse everything becomes. The farther we fall from God, the worse everything becomes. And if you remember, I told you that chapters we ended the Judges in chapter 16. And chapter 17 and 18 were sort of the first conclusion to the book of Judges, and now 19 through 21 is the second conclusion. In 17 and 18, we saw all of this man-made religion. This man, Micah, creating the ephod and idols and making his son a priest then a Levite a priest and... Then the tribe of Dan comes in and steals his idols and they go and take over an entire town and set up the idols there themselves and begin this man-made religion where they were incorporating some things from Yahweh and other things that they were learning from the peoples around them. And they were just getting farther and farther away. And now we get to this second conclusion in 19 through 21. And we see just how bad it's getting. We've seen a lot of things so far in the book of Judges. As the Judges seem to get worse and worse in character, and we end up with Samson, who seems to care about nothing but himself. And now we see where the nation is as a whole through these stories. To be very honest with you, I have dreaded preaching on this passage since I began the book of Judges. This is not an easy passage to get through. I don't really want to dwell on the facts of the story, but more the overall point of where Israel is at. I also debated for a while how to... You can preach these last three chapters as one sermon, I just felt like that was too much, trying to cover each verse... Uh, But I'm going to try and get through 19 and 20 today, because I think 19 makes more sense when you see the reaction in 20, and then we'll have a lot more. As we conclude the book next week, we'll be able to wrap it up and see from this and take take more from it than we do today. Today we're mostly just going to be looking at, at what's going on here in the nation of Israel. So in chapter 19, we're going to read about a Levite and his concubine. We'll start in chapter 19 with verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. So again, he gives us another reminder that there is no king in Israel. And again, that's not pointing towards Saul hasn't been made king yet. It, it's that they're not worshiping God who should be their king. And as we see that in the, the thought that he had given us in chapter 17 and 18, that because there was no king, every man was doing right, what was right in his own eyes, we see this Levite who was also not living where God had told the Levites to live. And he has taken a concubine, which in the Old Testament there are allowances for it, but we know that God made man and woman to become one. That's what we see from the beginning, and that's what Jesus reiterated, that don't you know this is what God wanted? And so we see the Israelites, because of the hardness of their heart, God granted divorce, and they have concubines. But this man was a Levite of the tribe where priests came from. He should have... He should have been one of the the good ones. And yet we see him with a complete disregard for what God's will is and what his law is for his life. Verses two to three. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went to speak to her tenderly, after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. And So he's taken this concubine, and, and she runs around on him and then leaves him, and he goes after her. And he takes a servant and two donkeys, and he goes and he comes to her father's house. And her father was glad to see him. Because even with his daughter as a concubine, it would have been better than having his daughter running around all over town. Verses 4 to 9. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. And so they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day they got up early in the morning... And he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. And so both of them ate. And when the man arose to go, along with his concubine and servant, his father in law, the girl's father said to him, Behold, now the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here, that your heart may be merry, and tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. What we see is most likely happening here is that this father is wanting this relationship for his daughter to work and so he is doing his best to keep the man there and give you know show him a good time make him want to be a part of of his family and keep his daughter as a concubine and so He's continuing to urge him over and over again. Well, hey, you know, don't leave on an empty stomach. And now that they've spent all day eating, well, you can't go now. And it keeps happening. And so it's delaying the journey over and over. And He's asked him to delay the journey once more. Verse 10, the man was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddle donkeys, his concubine was also with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come, and let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites, and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of the foreigners, who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah, And he said to his servant, come and let us approach one of these places and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. He didn't want to stay with foreigners. He begins this journey late in the day. Bethlehem isn't far from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem at that time was controlled by the Jebusites. It wouldn't become a Jewish city until, a completely Jewish city, until David took it over. And so he doesn't want to go into the city and maybe not be able to find a fellow Israelite to stay with. And so he says, no, let's, let's keep going. Even though it's late and it's dangerous to travel late, he wants to keep going. And we see the, really the tragedy and almost the irony in that, in that he feels like he will be safe if he goes to a, a Jewish city. And yet he turns out to be so wrong. Verses 14 and 15, so they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belonged to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah, and when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So what's going on there is when you traveled in that time, you know, there weren't, typically places where you would just go and and stay. And if you didn't know someone in the town, you would just go and sit down in the middle of the square. And someone passing by, because of their hospitality, their culture of hospitality that God had commanded them to be hospitable to not only their fellow Jews, but to foreigners as well, because they were once foreigners, someone should have seen them there and said, hey, come spend the night at my house. You're not from here, you're traveling, it's dark, but yet it's not happening. They're just sitting there. Verse 16. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work that evening. And now that man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country in Ephraim. For I am from there and I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but now I'm going to my house and no man will take me into his house. So he meets this man that's from the same place as him and he says, no one will take me in. And it probably was very confusing because he was expecting in this Jewish town that he would have been welcomed but because of what we see here what we will see in the next few verses what's most likely going on here is that no one wants to invite him in because they know what's probably going to happen they've probably seen it before what's going to happen in the next few verses probably isn't the first time this has happened the people of the city knew the sin that was there And they didn't want to be responsible for it. Verse 19, yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant and the young man who is with your servants. There's no lack of anything. He said, I'm not looking for you to feed me or, you know, the people that are with me or even my animals. I've got everything I need. I just need a safe place to, to sleep for the night. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and they ate and drank. And so he takes him in. He, he lets him come into his house and they're eating together. Verse 22 And while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house pounding the door and they spoke to the owner of the house the old man saying bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him then the man the owner of the house went out to them and said to them no my fellows please don't act so wickedly since this man has come into my house do not commit this act of folly I mean, when you think of the Old Testament and you think of what is the most evil thing you can think of or evil place, so often our minds go to Sodom and Gomorrah. If if we come across an evil place now, that's like Sodom and Gomorrah at that place. And yet we see here in the tribe of Israel, in a Jewish town of the tribe of Benjamin, the same thing happens. These men want to have this guest thrown out so that they can have relations with him. And this old man is saying, well, no, don't do this. You see, part of their hospitality rules where if you let someone into your home, even if that person was your enemy, you were responsible for their care and they would remain safe in your home where it would be a mark against your honor. So he's pleading with them, please don't do this. The man says to them in verse 24, Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. And then they let her go at the approach of dawn. And as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. This is just, this is unspeakable. As Israel has lost its focus and gotten farther and farther from God, this is where they were at. And again, this probably wasn't a first-time thing. The people of the city knew what these worthless men would do. They tolerated their behavior. We live in a world today that focuses so much on tolerance that if I even say that I think what you're doing is wrong, that makes me intolerant. I can't say, hey, I love you, but I wish you wouldn't do that. No, that makes me intolerant. And it feels like it has gotten more and more and more that way in recent years, but we see, even then, so long ago, the people of this town, they, they were unwilling to call out the sin of their neighbors. They were unwilling to do what God had told them to do if there was this kind of sin. They had become tolerant. And because of that, the sin took over the city. Continue in verse 27. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was lying there at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up and let's go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey And the man arose and went to his home and really in this story there is no not only is there no hero there's no innocent party this man threw her out there for these men to do this to her and then what was he doing well it says he awoke so he was sleeping he he went to bed People are morally bankrupt. And then he comes out and he says, he sees her laying there. He knows what happened. He says, get up, let's go. In the Hebrew, it's actually just a two-word phrase that's very abrupt. Almost like what had happened was her fault. He commands her to get up and go. The text doesn't make it clear whether or not She is dead because of what happens next, I would assume so. So she's laying there dead, puts her on his donkey and takes her home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and he laid hold of his concubine and cut her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day, consider it, take counsel, and speak up. See, I mean, oftentimes, if they were going to war or something was going on, they would send a message throughout the tribes. Many times it would be an animal that would be cut into pieces. If this man cuts up his concubine and everyone who sees it is just appalled nothing like this has ever happened and yet they're blind to their spiritual condition they have been worshipping other gods playing the harlot themselves they are far from God and at least in this town this kind of thing seems to be the, the norm and yet they're just they're appalled in chapter 20, we'll see that what has happened will lead to a civil war within Israel. Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. The sons of Israel said, tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine and spent the night at Gibah, which belongs to Benjamin. The men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me, and they intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel, Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. So again, this this Levite is, is not a great guy. He's. But he sent out his message and it was responded to in mass numbers from everywhere in Israel. And they said, Why did you send us this? And he tells the story. But you notice he, he skews some of the facts to make himself look like he is completely in the right. He didn't tell them that. First, he says they were trying to kill him. Then he says, they came and took my concubine. He didn't mention the fact that he was a coward and threw her out to them. But he's laid out the facts. This is what's happened. And we see their response, verses 8 through 11. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of one hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and one hundred out of one thousand, and one thousand out of ten thousand to supply food for the people, that when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. You know, a couple of months ago was the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. I saw this picture in a bunch of places that said, I would never want another 9-11, but I long for 9-12. When you think about that, I mean, how divided we seem to be as a country now over... Politics and religion and everything. Everything divides us. And yet on that day, on September 12, 2001, it didn't matter who you were. We were united. And that's what we see here from these people. They are so outraged by this sin. Not all the other ones that have been going on. They're united by this sin that they're going to have a draft. They're going to go up against them by lot, and they're going to take on 100 out of 1,000. 1,000 out of 10,000. 10% of the people are going to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin because of their outrage. And it is a good thing that they are wanting to get rid of this. But it seems almost so insincere when we see how far the whole nation is from God that they've picked this one sin to become outraged about. Chapter 18 when we saw the tribe of Dan go to a city that wasn't in their territory and slaughter everyone in it and then once they had taken over the city they set up false idols. Where were the other 11 tribes then? Where was the outrage? Well, they were all worshiping other gods too, so how can they be outraged by that? They've become so desensitized to worshiping idols and leaving their god that it takes something horrific to open their eyes. Look at verses 12 through 17. Then the tribes of Israel sent out men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? What's going on? You're allowing this. Now then deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who were numbered 700 choice men. Of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, besides Benjamin, were numbered 400,000 men who draw the sword. All of these were men of war. So we see that all these men of Israel from all over the promised land have come together and they have this army of 400,000 men and they go to the tribe of Benjamin and say, you, guys, you got a big issue here. This is terrible. Let us have those men and we're going to kill them because this sin is just, we can't have this. And yet, the tribe of Benjamin, out of pride or their own sin or who knows why, say no. And instead of giving up these worthless fellows who committed this terrible act, they make their own army. We'll show you guys, and so they're going to put their army of 26,000 against the 400,000 from the other tribes. Verse 18, now the sons of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day 22,000 men. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. I got myself all turned around. I'm going to go back to verse 18. Now the sons of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God and said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? Then the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And so... We see them actually inquire of God. They're on this, what they think is a, is a holy war. We're doing this for God, so let's ask Him which tribe should go up first. And God says Judah should go up first. You notice what God didn't say there. He didn't say, Send Judah up first, and I will give them into your hands. Send Judah up first, and I will be with you in eradicating this sin. There's no promise there. It's just, send Judah up first. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel... They embark on this holy war, on this crusade, and it does not start out well. They have this enormous army of 400,000 men against 26,000 Benjamites, and yet they suffer enormous losses their first day. But the people, the men of Israel, encourage themselves in a raid for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. And the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for the battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. Again, there's no promise. God doesn't say that he's going up with them, that he's going to deliver them. Then the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day, And Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again, 18,000 men of Israel. All these drew the sword. So they fought for two days, and we don't have a count of what the Benjamites have lost, but the Israelites have lost 10% of their army already. In two days. This is not going well. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people... Went up and came to Bethel and wept. And thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days saying, shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So finally we see this attitude of humility that God is looking for. It's not just seeking some advice, hey, which tribe should go first, or should we do this? It's saying, God, if we're going to do this, we need you. We can't do this without you. I can't get rid of this sin without you, God. And God then answers and gives them the promise. Go up, I will deliver them. I will help you defeat them. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. The sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah as at other times. And the sons of Benjamin went out against the people who were drawn away from the city and they began to strike and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the field about 30 men of Israel. And the sons of Benjamin said, They are struck down before us as at the first. The sons of Israel said, Let us flee, that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. Then all the men of Israel arose from their place and arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel, in ambush, broke out of their place, even out of Merachibah. When 10,000 choice men from all Israel came against Gibeah, the battle became fierce, but Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. And the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel so that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. We see in this that I think the thing that sticks out to me the most <laughs> there is Benjamin didn't know that disaster was upon them. And I think we see that so often in our lives. We, we can become entrenched in a sin and it still feels like things are going well. But we don't know that disaster is upon us. And 25,100 of them were killed that day out of the 26,000. So the sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated when the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they relied on the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. The men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city. When the men of Israel turned the battle and Benjamin began to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, for they said, Surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them, and behold, the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel, toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them while those who came out of the cities destroyed them in the midst of them. And they surrounded Benjamin, pursued them without rest, and trod them down opposite Gibeah toward the east. Thus 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, and all these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled towards the wilderness, so the Rock of Rimmon, but they caught 5,000 of them on the highways and overtook them at Gideon and killed 2,000 of them. So, all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword, but these were valiant warriors. And this is sort of a retelling of the battle in, in more graphic detail. But, the 600, but 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, and they remained at the rock of Rimmon for four months the men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found they also set on fire all the cities which they found so as this civil war plays out as God is with them and they destroy the the army they're facing and then they continue on and they treat them like they should have treated the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land if this sin is so rampant within you that you won't even give over these worthless men, they wipe out the entire tribe other than 600 men this is where Israel has fallen to a state of complete disarray rampant sin, of rampant idol worship, of being far from God. They're now entrenched in civil war and killing one another. And they almost completely wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. Only 600 men are left. They've burned all the cities. They have killed everyone, even the cattle to get rid of this sin and what they have picked as their crusade. So we'll get a lot more out of this next week as we finish this story and we we conclude the book. But as I see this, the civil war and the way they are entrenched in sin, I've come back to this verse several times, but I think it's so key to understanding because... In this story of Israel, we can look at our nation and say, hey, look how we've fallen farther and farther. And as the nation falls farther and farther again, it's like this snowball going downhill that's just getting bigger. Really an avalanche that is just picking up snow as it goes and is going to bowl over anything in its way. But I think what we need to see is in our own lives how we can see Israel. And again, we go back to this passage in Galatians 5, verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. When I mean, we have a civil war going on within us, every day, every minute of every day, whether I do the right thing or I do the wrong thing, something inside me is upset. Paul says there in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, his his whole thrust there is to be led by the Spirit, to be grounded in the grace that saved you and let the Spirit flow through you. And like Israel coming before God finally and having the humility to offer sacrifices and say, God, we need you. I and mean, that's how we walk in the spirit. God, you saved me. You sustained me. You work through me. It's not me. It's you. And that's how we begin to win those battles against the sin in our life. And as we look at our nation and the way it has fallen, when we look at the nation of Israel... Yeah, it is a whole bunch of people that are all really far from God. But, you know, it starts with individuals making those choices. And we have an opportunity to be individuals that don't, that stand out. As the church should stand out all over our country as a beacon of hope for what God is offering. Just like Israel was supposed to be the beacon of hope to everyone around them. And yet here they were just as bad as they were just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. So We will finish the book of Judges next week and that story and hopefully we can learn for our own lives from the nation of Israel.